Welcome to the Ballpark Boys, a weekly podcast that explores the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball. We're a group of baseball addicts who, back in 2011, set off in a rickety old hippie bus to catch a game in every MLB stadium. To celebrate the 10-year anniversary of our journey, we'll be retracing our steps by narrating our story and then diving deeper into the facts, figures, and fun anecdotes of every ballpark to give you an idea of what makes each unique. Follow us on social at ballpark underscore boys for a daily dose of ballpark trivia and visit ballparkboys.com for more information. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Ballpark Boys, where we explore the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball in the same order of when we saw them all in one summer 10 years ago. Today, we'll be exploring Coors Field, the home of the Rockies. My name is Travis Smith, and with me on this episode are Kendall Young and Jack Wilson, meaning we've got three of the four of us who set off on that journey a decade ago. Now, before we dive into the history of this ballpark, I want to know your first memory of visiting Coors 10 years ago. Kendall, what do you remember about the home of the Rockies? Well, let me tell you, Travis, uh, unlike any ballpark I'd ever been to, the ball just flies. Before the game even started, though, I remember there was a Taco Bell promotion where if the Rockies themselves scored seven runs, you could take your ticket stub from that game the following day to any Taco Bell and get free tacos. And being Mariners fans, where runs are certainly hard to come by, you know, seven runs seemed uh, like a pretty tall task and there was no way these free tacos were happening. But Coors Field, light air, mile high. By the second inning, they had seven runs. I remember that very well, too. The T-shirts that they gave us said, we want free tacos. You, you just heard about it in the book, and we uh, we were unable to cash in for our uh, free tacos. But but I think all of us can agree that we still demand that Coors Field owes us free tacos. So if anybody from the Rockies organization is listening to this, we're coming. Jack, what do you remember most about Coors Field? I remember it being very cold night that we went to that stadium. Um, I think there was even like a chance of rain, uh, but I do remember feeling the air, feeling that the stadium was kind of like a wind tunnel. So that might've contributed to why they scored seven runs, but it was a, it was a good experience and very cold. Before we get into the details of what you could see, if you visit the ballpark today, as always, we're going to take you on a brief history of Coors Field. Ground broke on Coors Field in 1992. This was just after Camden Yards opened in Baltimore, which swept away the era of the big, ugly, multi-purpose stadiums and welcomed in the era of baseball-only venues, which we more affectionately call ballparks. To give you perspective, Coors Field was the first baseball-only venue built in the National League since Dodger Stadium was constructed in 1959. That's a long time. The 60s, 70s, and 80s were filled with these gigantic domes, or we call them sometimes toilet bowl stadiums, that not only fit baseball and football, but at times soccer, monster truck rallies, you name it, everything was used in these multi-purpose complexes. But the 90s hit, thanks to Camden Yards, and again, we'll talk about this a lot more, in the Camden Yards episode, and suddenly MLB was turning back to the ballpark. And they have not looked back since, and I must say, I quite prefer it. Back to Coors Field. 
Originally, Coors was supposed to be relatively small with a capacity of less than 44,000 seats. However, Rockies fans came out in full surge for their inaugural season, which was played at Denver Broncos Mile High Stadium as Coors was under construction, and broke an MLB attendance record, drawing almost 4.5 million people. So immediately, the plans for Coors Field were altered, and over 6,000 more seats were added to bring the capacity of the ballpark to over 50,000. The Rockies maintained an impressive attendance of nearly 4 million on average for the greater part of the next decade, and even last year, they were just under 3 million. And as you heard in the narrative section of this episode, dinosaur bones were discovered throughout the grounds while Coors was being built. One of them was, awesomely, a triceratops skull that weighed a thousand pounds. This, of course, sparked interest among the public, and there was a wide cry for the field to be named Jurassic Park, which would have been amazing. However, corporate naming rights, of course, prevailed, and the ballpark took on the name of the area's beloved beer, Coors. Coors Field does, however, incorporate the dinosaur bones into its mascot, a triceratops that's purple in color named Dinger. Kellen's not with us today, so doing the walkability score for Coors Field is Kendall. Kendall, I believe this is a pretty high-rated ballpark. Absolutely, Travis. In fact, Coors Field gets our best walk score yet, if you can believe that. On the 20 to 80 prospect scale, we're actually going to give it a 75, which means it's, you know, it's a great ball player. A That's Nolan a very Aaron. high rating. Absolutely. A Nolan Arenado or Andrew McCutcheon, if you will. Coors was actually built in the Lodo neighborhood in downtown Denver, short for Lower Downtown, which claims to be Denver's oldest neighborhood. While it's labeled as an older industrial area, it's actually now home to many hip breweries, restaurants, and different markets. In fact, we found that a simple Google search will actually give you five breweries within 10 blocks of the ballpark, including one that's actually built into the ballpark right next to the right field gate. Combine this with plenty of other pubs and places to gather before a game, and you've got a fantastic atmosphere that's well-deserving of a high walkability score and plenty of places to drink something other than Coors. Well, don't let the uh, naming sponsor of the ballpark hear you say that, but I couldn't agree more. Some of the breweries that surround Coors Field are excellent, and when I inevitably return to the ballpark, I'm going to try and hit all five of those within the 10 block uh, radius of Coors Field before going to the game. Now, as always, we're going to take you around the bases of the ballpark, giving you three things that are unique to this stadium, where if you're lucky enough to visit Coors Field, you should go and see. And if you can't, you should at least know about. Jack, what's on first at Coors Field? On first is just the way that the ballpark itself affects the game. And one of the most commonly stated things about Coors Field is that it's a hitter's park. This is because the ballpark is, of course, situated one mile above sea level. In fact, the 20th row of the upper deck is adorned in purple, which clashes against the otherwise green seats to officially mark 5,280 feet. The elevation helps offense with a combination of both thin air and dry air, allowing baseballs to fly much further than other parks of lower elevations. After the 1999 season broke a ton of MLB offensive numbers, Coors was starting to be seen as a fairgrounds for home runs, with games straying from normality. People called it Williamsport after the Little League World Series field, and some even compared it to the NASA launch pad, calling it Coors Canaveral. 
To give some perspective, the first 1-0 game ever to be played at Coors Field was in 2005, 10 years after it opened. So to combat the severe impact the thin air and wind were having on the game of baseball, Coors installed a handful of measures. One was to move the fences back, which helped a bit, but the other was far more interesting. In 2002, a gigantic humidor was installed so baseballs could be stored in a regulated and more normal environment. The humidor is the size of a full room and keeps thousands of baseballs ready for Rockies games in hopes of nullifying some of the impact the elevation will have on the aerodynamics of the ball. And it's actually worked. Since the installation of the humidor and the fences being moved back, Coors has slowly normalized its offense. Now, the ballpark sees the same average number of home runs as all the others in the MLB. I feel like throughout a ballpark's lifespan, the designers will often make adjustments to try and cater more to the game of baseball. Some make uh, playing surface adjustments. We talked about that in Chase Field in Arizona. Minute Maid Park removed the hill in center field at one point. In T-Mobile Park, we changed the fences, how far back from the from home plate they were. But there has to be no greater example of attempting to return to a normal baseball game than at Coors Field. Rounding first and heading to second, Kendall, what's on second at Coors? On second base at Coors Field is what is appropriately called the forest. It's, it's a rarity that ballparks get clever with their batter's eye. I'm sure you can tell where I'm going with this. Most ballparks, they choose to simply install a large dark wall, often electing to keep it green or dark blue to maintain the color of the fence around the park. And the Yankees, they are special. They have the black in center field as their batter's eye. Coors Field, though, probably has the coolest batter's eye in the game. They went with the color green, but it's green in every nature of the word. Instead of just a color, Coors has gathered pine trees and boulders from across the state and planted a forest out beyond the center field wall. There's, of course, also a fountain in the middle of it all, because why not? And when a Rocky hits a home run or the team wins, the geysers shoot up over the trees. The trees and rocks creep into the visiting bullpen, and numerous times throughout a game, the camera will show a pitcher warming up and throwing to the bullpen catcher, whose backstop is a handful of tree stumps. This proximity has meant that the forest is not just popular with fans, though. It's popular with a lot of visiting players as well. Spotting the shade and the close nature of the foliage, relief pitchers of the visiting team often wander into the forest. And once, on a particularly hot day in August of 2015, Mariners closer Fernando Rodney simply decided to use the shade provided by one large pine and just camp out for a while. Not a bad spot to watch a ball game, if you ask me. Google Fernando Rodney Coors Field and you will find not only great images of Fernando Rodney buried in the batter's eye forest, but some phenomenal memes as well. Rounding second and heading to third, Jack, what's standing on third base at Coors Field? Well, on third is the rock pile. As you stated in the history of the ballpark, the initial plans for Coors Field had a capacity of only 44,000 seats. When the designers opted to expand the capacity, they needed to find an easy way to add seats without altering too much of the existing structure, which was already well under construction. 
They opted to add a unique section deep beyond center field where over 2,000 seats could be built in a bleacher-style setup without changing any of the existing plans. This section is called the Rock Pile and sits just above the forest and is adorned with metal benches stacked on top of each other that lead up to a rounded top. When originally opened, the tickets for seats in the Rock Pile were sold for just $1 each. One dollar even in the 90s that's cheap for a sporting event yep and even today they remain some of the cheapest in any ballpark with pricing starting at just four dollars for adults and one dollar for children most of which can be purchased day of among the rising prices of tickets across the sport the price is simply excellent however you do get what you pay for being a last second add-on the rock pile is really far away from the action with the nearest seat being 480 feet away from home plate and the farthest seat sitting around 580 feet away. Don't bother bringing your glove if you sit here. Even with the way some balls still fly out of course, no player has ever hit a home run that's reached the rock pile. Rounding third and coming home, a final fact about Coors Field. Coors Field will be named Coors Field maybe forever. The city came to agreements for Coors to be the original sponsor back in 1995 and then re-signed a 30-year agreement in 2017, meaning it will maintain its beer title until 2047. However, given the national popularity of the beer and its promotional value in the stadium, odds are the ballpark will remain Coors Field until its dying days. That wraps it up for the ballpark banter section of this episode. Before we proceed to the narration section and hear the next chapter of Touch Em All, we'd love it if you followed us on social media at ballpark underscore boys for a daily dose of ballpark trivia and to visit us at ballparkboys.com for more information. And we'd love it if you tuned into our next episode as we head to Minneapolis to explore the Twins' target field. Until then, let's continue our story. Top of the second, part one, Coors Field, 7.55 p.m., Friday, June 17th. The upper deck of Coors Field is adorned with a single row of purple seats that wrap continuously around the top sections, forming a thin line of vivid color that clashes against the remaining sea of dark green seats. This line stands to mark 5,280 feet above sea level offering the fun ability for fans to claim that they were, physically, a mile high while watching the hometown Rockies play baseball. In right center, a small fountain and an impressive collection of evergreen trees ooze into the visitor's bullpen, mirroring forestry one would find in the nearby Rocky Mountains. The four of us had randomly stumbled on free taco night at Coors, a promotion at the ballpark where if the Rockies score at least seven runs in that night's game— Attendees could bring their tickets to a participating Taco Bell restaurant the following day for a complimentary assortment of tacos. Each sporting giveaway t-shirts that bluntly stated, We want tacos on the front. We cheered as the Rockies went on to score seven runs in the first two innings, eventually besting the visiting Tigers 13-6. Yet, seeing as we had to depart for Minneapolis immediately following the game, we never got to cash in our tickets for the free food. 
Understandably, there were no Colorado Rockies participating Taco Bell locations in the state of Minnesota. I still have my t-shirt, however, and I still maintain that Coors Field owes me tacos. Outside of our cheers for free food, the four of us spent the majority of the evening being entertained by a large purple dinosaur that wandered between the various sections of the ballpark, interacting with fans and doing its best to get them to start chants throughout the game. This thing is Dinger, the Rockies mascot. Allow me to admit that baseball mascots are incredibly confusing at times. Some are easy to understand. The Pittsburgh Pirates mascot is a patch-eyed buccaneer, while the Milwaukee Brewers have a Bernie the Brewer. A yellow-haired man who used to slide into a vat of beer whenever a Milwaukee player hit a home run. Other mascots, however, don't quite make sense. In Seattle, for example, we have the Mariner Moose. Well, in Philadelphia, they have this strange green alien thing called the Philly Fanatic. Then, just as you're thinking that some teams simply fell to alliteration to represent their ball club, the Oakland Athletics mascot is a large white elephant. And although I am still attempting to discern the reasoning behind the A's choice, the Rockies' purple dinosaur, which, yes, does unfortunately look like Barney, actually has a cool story behind it. When construction broke ground on Coors Field, the workers discovered a dinosaur egg buried deep beneath the earth on which they were preparing to build the stadium. Figuring that they had to somehow incorporate this odd find into the ballpark, the team's front office decided that their mascot would now be a large dinosaur, which was introduced in 1994 by being ceremoniously hatched from the egg to the tune of Wild Thing. Its purple color is the alternative hue of the Rockies the same color that fills the aforementioned seats that stand a mile high in Coors Field. Three fifty a.m. The dreary mood from the very real conversation Andrew and I had on the way into Colorado was not helped by the equally dreary weather that met us on the way out of the state. A rainstorm pounded the van as it entered Nebraska and shifted from I-76 to I-80, heading somewhat in the direction of Minnesota. Screw this, Andrew muttered, squinting to see through the downpour. I silently shared this sentiment from the back bench seat, writing in my Navy notebook and watching intently as he did his best to keep the wheel straight. Every 15 seconds or so, he took a sip from a large energy drink that was perched precariously in the cup holder next to him. The drink was called Chaos in a Can. The story of the Ballpark Boys is captured in the book Touch Em All by Travis Parker Smith, narrated in each episode by Kellen Larson. The music for this podcast is performed by Forrest Wilson. Thank you.